What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Andrea. And this is Inhuman, a true crime podcast. So this story, I actually hadn't heard until I started researching oh. it, but it took me down a path that I did not know I was going to go down. So, and it it is a tough one before we get into it. I'm going to give a very large trigger warning because we will be, di- be discussing a lot of physical and sexual abuse, rape, and oh, suicide. So just like a very giant trigger warning because that is discussed a lot in this case and it's terrible and awful, but I want the victim's names to get out there. So that is why I'm telling this story. So today we are talking about the survival story of Lisa McVeigh and how she helped capture a serial killer. Ooh, I don't think I know this one at all. I really could not believe that I hadn't heard this before. And I honestly went into this as it was just going to be the story of Lisa McVeigh. And then I learned about this, I thought that she just helped capture the guy that abducted her, but he's a full-blown serial killer. Oh. And so I'm going to be not just talking about Lisa's story, but also talking about this serial killer. Okay. So she literally convinced a sadistic serial killer to set her free, and then she helped police capture him. Ooh, that sounds familiar to me for some reason, though. Okay. You might recognize it once you hear it. Okay. Because um, I feel like it has to have been covered before, but I just, I had never heard it. Yeah. All right. So Lisa McVeigh was born in March 1967, and she had a very rough childhood. She was in and out of foster care as a kid, and at just 14 years old, Lisa's drug and alcohol addicted mother forced her to move in with and quote-unquote, take care of her grandmother. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so she was technically, like, in her grandmother's care, but it was a very bad situation. Okay. So this was in Tampa, Florida, and while she was living with her grandmother starting at age 14, her grandmother's boyfriend was sexually and physically abusing her. Ew. Lisa later recalled, quote, I was being sexually abused at home. My grandmother's boyfriend used to put a gun to my head every time he molested me for three years. Oh my god, that's awful. Yeah. And she, after she was, like, abducted and and survived, she shared that the night before she was taken, she was actually planning to end her life. And she had even written a goodbye note and was planning, like, the next day to end her life. That is so sad on so many different levels. I know. And it's like one tragedy actually saved her from another tragedy. Right. You know, like it's, yeah. Oh my gosh. So on November 3rd, 1984, 17-year-old Lisa was riding her bike back home from a double shift at the donut shop that she worked at. Okay. It was about 2 or 2.30 in the morning, and she was riding past a local church when she felt a man grab her from behind. Mm. 
She started screaming as loud as she could, but the man then pressed a gun to her head and said, shut up or I'll blow your brains out. That would be so scary considering the trauma that she endured from basically the same thing. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I think because she had been through that, it kind of, she knew a little bit better to like listen to him and do what he said. And Elisa said that at that moment, she realized she no longer wanted to die. And she told this man, quote, I'll do whatever you want. Just don't kill me. Wow. So the man then threw Lisa into his car, tied her up with ligatures, and blindfolded her. Oh my god, can you see this dog? <laughs> I do, do see, see him, him now. in the corner. He's like, Mom, Mom? He he's literally pawing at me because I stopped scratching him. <laughs> Hi, buddy. No, Mom's That's because he's story. he's what we call down here in the South runt. <laughs> <laughs> god. Hi, buddy. He's so cute though. How could you not? I know. Our trainer would not be happy. <laughs> okay, back to back to the story. Sorry, guys. I just my dog like literally tried to scratch off my arm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, when the man blindfolded her, Lisa like clenched down her jaw, and that way when she released clenching her jaw, there was a space at the bottom of the blindfold that she could see out of. Oh, that's smart. That's really smart. Yeah. So once the man started driving, um, Lisa began observing every single thing she could. And she later said that she had watched a lot of crime TV shows. So she kind of knew that observing everything she can would be imperative in helping her survive. Right. So she was able to use that small open space at the bottom of the blindfold to figure out what type of car she was in, a red Dodge Magnum. And as the car started moving, Lisa figured out that they were going north and she started counting the minutes that passed. When they walked into this man's apartment, she counted every single step. That's so smart. I know. And then once inside, she was doing the same thing, observing as much as she could. She noticed that the carpet was green and yellow with red specks, and she kind of, like, mapped out the apartment in her mind as the man was walking her around. Okay. This man then repeatedly raped, tortured, and abused Lisa for the next 26 hours. Oh, my gosh. And she was certain that at any moment this man could end her life. And so when she was moving around the house, specifically in the bathroom, she pressed her fingerprints on as many surfaces as she could, hoping that that evidence would help police catch her, you know, Good for her, man. That is insane. Like, she really did the damn thing with that. She did. But Lisa fought with everything in her to stay alive. So she, at one point, overheard a news report that she was missing. Yeah. And when she heard this, she started crying and screaming, and she recalls that the man then put the gun back to her head, saying, quote, if you scream one more time, I'll be forced to put a bullet in your head. Stop crying. So what stood out to Lisa with this was that he said, forced, I'll be forced to put a bullet in your head. So that's when she started thinking, maybe he doesn't want to kill me. Yeah. And because she had endured so much abuse from her grandmother's boyfriend, she kind of knew how to handle people like this. Right. So she knew to, like, 
go along with everything he said and how to act so that it wouldn't set him off. Okay. And then she figured out that this man had a very childlike mindset. So she started appealing to that. She was humanizing herself and even offered to be his secret girlfriend. She asked him why he was doing this and he told her that it was to get back at women in general because of a recent breakup that he had been through. Oh. So, right? Like, Thanks. <laughs> great reason. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this made Lisa, Lisa think that maybe he had done this to other women before and that will come back into play later. Okay. Lisa then made up a story that her father was ill and that she was his only caregiver. And with this whole story that she made up, she was able to elicit enough sympathy from this man and basically persuaded him to release her. Wow. Yeah. That doesn't happen. <laughs> no. No. She she knew what she was doing. Yeah. So the man brought Lisa back to his car, telling her that he was going to take her back home. And Lisa was still blindfolded, but she could tell that the man took her to an ATM and a gas station before dropping her off behind a remote business around 4.30 a.m. Okay. And he instructed her to leave the blindfold on for five minutes while he escaped. And he told her, quote, tell your father he's the reason why I didn't kill you. Wow. I know. Like, it gave me chills, kind of. Yeah. Like, she was smart enough to figure out his personality and what And he actually, he like, kind of cared. And so he let her go. Yeah. yeah, that's insane. Wow. Yeah. So Lisa did what she was told, and once the five minutes passed, she began running home. But upon arriving home in the early morning hours, she was interrogated by her grandmother's boyfriend about where she had been for the last day. Oh my god. And he accused her of, quote, cheating on him. Ew. Mm-hmm. What? You're not- no. You- Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. No. That disgusts me. He interrogated and beat her for five hours trying to get the quote-unquote truth. After she had just gone through rape and torture? What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Lisa's account of what happened remained consistent despite both her grandmother and the grandmother's boyfriend not believing her. That is so sad. That makes me so sad she had nowhere else to go to, like, escape all of that. I know. And eventually, a phone call was made to police, so Lisa's grandmother called the Tampa Police Department to tell them to not worry about that missing girl anymore because she was home and was making up a story about being kidnapped. Thanks. Thanks, family. Mm-hmm. But, thankfully, the police insisted on doing an investigation. Yeah, they have to if someone is reported missing, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So the first person that Lisa was interviewed by was apparently a female detective, and according to Lisa, the tech the detective didn't really believe her story because Lisa seemed so like calm. That is I just have no words at this point. I just No. You have a teenager that is telling you this story and and her caregiver, her grandma, is saying she's lying. And if you truly are like not the best detective out there, that's what happens. That is awful. Unfortunately, yeah, that's unacceptable. You you, you should oh absolutely. you should um if even if you don't believe them necessarily, have someone else step in. Yeah, 
you know and do a proper investigation look right. into it all of that exactly because because yeah. everybody responds to trauma differently i mean some people are calm some people are yeah you know it's called um internalizing their trauma it's called um shock <laughs> yeah like yeah hello have you had any training yeah apparently not yeah it's crazy but thankfully, finally, the next day, Lisa was interviewed by Sergeant Larry Pinkerton, and she told him every single detail she could remember. She described what she knew about her captor, his vehicle, the route they took, among other details. Okay. And Pinkerton believed her. Lisa even oh, remembered God. overhearing him tell other female detectives, quote, I believe her. Call the FBI. Wow. Wow. So a few days after Lisa was abducted, she heard a news report about a murder victim in the area. And there had actually been several victims found in the area recently, and it was believed that there was a, a serial killer on the loose. And as soon as Lisa heard this report, she immediately knew that her kidnapper was the killer. Hmm. That would be so scary. Oh my god, I know. I know. So she she called Sergeant Pinkerton Pinkerton right up, right away, and said, come get me. There's more I need to tell you. So Lisa recounted her experience again, and Pinkerton asked her if she'd like to be hypnotized to see if she could remember anything that, you know, wasn't coming to her conscious. But her grandmother and her grandmother's boyfriend refused to grant her permission. So... Lisa went and revealed the boyfriend's abuse. To Thank the goodness. I was hoping she would come forward. I know that's hard to do and it's easy, a lot easier said than done. But yeah, I was hoping that she would eventually come forward with that. Yeah, she was like, that's enough. Like, you're stopping me from being able to potentially help in this literal serial killer yeah. investigation. Yeah. And thankfully, the boy, the grandmother's boyfriend was arrested. Did the grandmother know that this was happening? I mean, I would assume sure to some did. capacity she knew, but that always kills me. I'm like, do you not care about your your grand your child, your grandchild, whatever? Like, yeah, apparently not. So after speaking with Lisa the second time, Pinkerton called the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, which was the office that was investigating the murders in the area, and he told them, "quote." We've got another body here, a live body. We think the guy who abducted Lisa McVeigh is your serial killer. Wow. So Lisa was, after her grandmother's boyfriend was arrested, she was uh, placed in a center for runaway teens. And there she was staying and she was presented with a photo lineup of potential suspects. So like I said, you know, she was blindfolded, but... She was kind of able to get a glimpse of him, but she also at one point was able to feel his face. So she had a pretty good idea of what he looked oh, like. Oh, true, true. Okay. And with that, she was able to successfully identify her abductor in that photo lineup. And it was a man named Bobby Joe Long. Hmm. So we're not going to talk about this fucking monster. Good. We are super excited because today's episode is sponsored by BarkBox. As most of you guys know, my dog Mackie loves his chew toys, but they do not last very long in our house. And that's why we love our subscription service, BarkBox. 
BarkBox is a monthly subscription box that offers an array of theme boxes for your pup. Inside your box, you'll find toys, treats, and unleashed joy, thoughtfully designed to satisfy every dog's unique playstyle. BarkBox has several boxes to choose from, depending on your dog's needs, such as the Super Chewer box, which was designed to challenge and engage your pup for longer-lasting play. And that's what we need for Mackie. <laughs> right now, you can get a free extra month of BarkBox, which is up to a $35 value, by using our link www.barkbox.com inhumanpod. So treat your dog to what they love with BarkBox www.barkbox.com slash inhumanpod for a extra free month of BarkBox. Okay, Bobby Joe Long, he was born on October 14th, 1953 to Joe and Luetta Long. He was born with an extra X chromosome chromosome and had a specific variant of Klinefelter syndrome which is a condition that results in excessive estrogen production, leading men to have some female traits. This often includes breast development. And this was something that Long had, and he was teased as a child for his large breasts, and he actually underwent breast reduction surgery as a teen. Oh. In his childhood, he also suffered multiple head injuries, which we know. What happens with that, Yeah. Yep. yep. And on top of that, he had a dysfunctional relationship with his mother. Mm -hmm. He reportedly slept in her bed, in her bed, until he was a teenager. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He also reportedly, like, resented his mother because of all of the short-term boyfriends that she had had during his childhood. Mm. In 1974, Long married his high school girlfriend, and together they ended up having two children, but they ultimately divorced in 1980. In the early 1980s, Bobby Joe Long committed at least 50 rapes in the Fort Lauderdale, Ocala, Miami, and Dade County areas of Florida. Are you serious? That is... Yeah. How did he get away with it? Like, or did they... You'll see, there's some... There's some uh, times where you're like, how the hell did this still happen? So starting in 1981, he began contacting women through classified ads, including in the Penny Saver, um, which if you don't know what that is, it's like a periodical where people can basically like put classified ads. Yeah. And this led him to later be called the classified ad rapist by some. Hmm. But he would basically find a woman that was alone, would ask to use the bathroom, and then he would take out his, quote, rape kit. He would, which I don't know exactly what was in there, but I don't want to. I don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. He would then assault the woman and rob her. In October 1981, Long was living with and reportedly was in a relationship with a woman named Sharon Richards, and Sharon accused Long at one point of raping her, but unfortunately, police didn't have enough evidence to convict him. But then just two weeks later, Long hit Richards during an argument, and he was able to be tried and convicted of assault. Okay. But he then somehow requested a new trial, and that was granted. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So this new trial was like pending, but Long was able to get out of jail during that because bail and, you know, whatever. Yeah. And during that time, he started up a new relationship with a woman named Emma. And he would apparently be giving Emma gifts of items that he had stolen from his rape victims. That is disgusting. And I do not think that if you are waiting for trial for a a violent crime, you should be able to be let out. I agree. I agree because he was out for basically two years. That's unacceptable. I'm sorry. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, Just wait till you find out uh, what happens once he gets (laughs) convicted. So in September 1983, he was found guilty on those assault charges. Okay. And he then, of course, began kind of trying to, like, fight those, that guilty verdict. Right. And I'm not sure exactly what happened with that. But while he was trying to fight it in November... He was charged with sending an obscene letter and photographs to a 12-year-old girl. So police had traced phone calls from Long to that 12-year-old. So they were able to, like, definitively prove it. Like, link the two, yeah. Yeah. But guess what uh, What wonderful sentence he got for that? No- nothing. He probably got, like, probation or something. Two days in jail and six-month probation. Because he, t- t- like, technically didn't do anything? Is that why? Even though that's still... I don't know. Not acceptable behavior to perform yeah. with a child? Yeah. A 12-year-old? No, it, it, huh. it doesn't make any sense, but that's what he got. Wow. And then in early 1984, Long was acquitted of that 1981 assault charge. There were multiple witnesses that testified against him, but he left that courtroom a free man. Why? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Is it because... I don't know. I can't imagine. I I don't know. They were able... Yeah, I don't know. It's absolutely ridiculous. And look what he went on to do. Yep, that's pretty much when his crime spree began. Yeah. I can get away with this. I can get away with anything. Exactly. Yeah. On March 27th, 1984, Bobby Joe Long committed his first murder. So he abducted and raped 20-year-old artist Ann Wick. And he said that after, he later said that after the assault, after he raped her, he said that he found himself unsatisfied. So he just decided to strangle her to death. And her body actually was not discovered until November 1984. The next month, Long attempted to abduct his next victim. So a woman named Mary Hicks was driving her Jaguar when Long tried to abduct her. But she was really smart and she crashed her car. And he was actually, like, caught and faced charges of, um, I believe it was um, attempted, like, kidnapping or abduction. And he faced charges later in July 1984 but he ended up being just charged with a $1,500 fine for the damage to her car and three years probation. What? I don't know if, like, maybe they weren't able to prove that he was actually trying, trying to, to take her. her. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he probably was able to fight that, but no. And he apparently decided after that that no other victim would live long enough to be able to make any accusations against him. Mm. Okay. 
And after this, Long went on to abduct, rape, and murder at least 10 women in the next eight months. Oh my gosh. Does he have like a right. a name, like a serial killer name, like better known as? Mm-mm. Can't Other believe I haven't heard of it. Classified ad rapist, right? Yeah. I couldn't believe that I had not heard of it. And he's like basically one of Florida's most horrific serial killers. Yeah. Like you said, 10 people in eight months. Yeah. That's that's pretty high profile. <laughs> yeah. No, wow. I know. It's, it, yeah. Jeez. So on May 13th, 1984, police found the body of a young woman. And she was laying face down in the dirt with her hands tied behind her back. She was identified as 20-year-old Nyan T. Long, better known as Lana. And she had recently moved from Los Angeles to Tampa to be with her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. So Lana had actually recently quit her job as an exotic dancer at a local nightclub to begin studying art at the University of South Florida. At the crime scene, the only evidence that was found were some tire tracks and some red fibers. But despite that, they weren't able to track anything. I mean, this was 1984, so not as big of like a database, but they they did have that evidence, which was important later. Okay. Two weeks later, police discovered the body of 22-year-old Michelle Denise Sims. They discovered her body on an area called Lover's Lane at Park Road in Tampa. And Michelle had been working as a sex worker to support her cocaine habit. And she Mm -hmm. had also just moved to Florida just a day before she was murdered. Wow. So Long had picked Michelle up, raped her, and then attempted to strangle her. But apparently Michelle kept fighting. And Long ended up basically like getting angry that she was fighting back and slashed her throat several times. Long then left her body and bloody clothes and fled the scene. And once again, not a ton of evidence, but they did find more red fibers. And those were enough to for the FBI to connect both of these deaths. Interesting. Okay. Wow. Then in late June, Long's next victim was found. A woman named Elizabeth Ludenbach had been abducted and raped on June 8th. But with this one, Long had changed up his M.O. once again. And this time, apparently he basically, like, raped Elizabeth and then told her to put her clothes back on and returned with her to his car. And he actually later claimed that he had not intended to kill Elizabeth, but her incessant crying changed his mind. So he strangled her to death and disposed of her body in some shrubs. But because of the difference in M.O., her murder was not connected to Lana and Michelle's deaths until much later on. No red fibers at the scene, I guess, this time? Nope. And I think the red fibers came from the either the carpet or the trunk. I think the carpet of Long's car. Okay. So maybe he wasn't as, like, like if he didn't necessarily drag her out since the M.O. was a little bit different. Right. It, it was definitely different. Yeah. And at this point, Long was beginning to escalate. It was less than a week before he committed his next crime. 22-year-old Karen Beth Drin's friend was a sex worker who was looking for money for her next heroin fix. Mm-hmm. Long picked her up, raped, and strangled her to death. He then wrapped her body in a beach blanket, 
and shoved her into the trunk of his car and then drove out to an orange grove to dispose of her body. On October 14th, Karen's body was discovered and she was actually well known to the local police and they were able to identify her body quickly. Mm. On October 31st, 1984, police discovered the badly decomposed body of Kimberly Kyle Hops. She had once again been strangled raped and strangled to death, and then disposed of down an embankment into a ditch. So, by this time, the ta- the entire, like, Tampa community was on edge. Right. And kind of was thinking there's a serial killer on the loose. Yeah. Many of the victims were sex workers or people that were out walking alone at night. So, officers began patrolling the major streets and highways in an attempt to catch this killer. Okay. And this is where Lisa McVeigh comes into the story. So after Lisa escaped from Long, police discovered the skeletal remains of a young woman in a field in Tampa, and they were identified as those of 17-year-old Virginia Lee Johnson, who had turned to sex work to support her alcohol and drug addiction, and they were able to link this murder to the same killer. And then, a few days later, a woman named Kim Swan was discovered murdered, and Apparently, Kim had fought so hard against Long that he didn't even rape her. He just murdered her and dumped her body under an overpass. Oh my gosh. So he was really escalating to like... Yeah. Two days later, an official task force was established to coordinate the efforts of investigators that had been looking into the different murders in the area. So this included the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, the Tampa Police Department, the Pasco County Sheriff's Office, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and the FBI. And after Lisa's initial statement, police kind of started looking for the man that Lisa had described. And once Sergeant Pinkerton called the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office and said, we have this information we think is linked, they were able to kind of start looking for those specifics. Okay. So on November 15th, 1984, police located the red Dodge Magnum that Lisa had described. They pulled the driver over and the man inside handed them a license that said Robert Joe Long. The officers told Long that they were looking for a robbery suspect and they basically like went back to their car on the pretense of checking his license details Um, But, you know, they were doing more than that. Right. He was then photographed and the officers filled out a field interrogation report. But then, much to Long's surprise, he was free to go. So he thought he was safe. He wouldn't be caught. But in reality, the task force members were working diligently to collect as much evidence as they could to connect him to the murders. Okay. Because they didn't want to, like, arrest him and get off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's got to be such a shitty feeling, though, like, having to let someone oh go because you don't have enough evidence. Like, ugh. I know. And that is about when Lisa was able to identify Bobby Joe Long from that um, police, li- or, you know, the suspect lineup. Right. Police found the bank records that Long, or police found bank records that showed that Long had withdrawn money from the Florida National Bank the morning that Lisa was set free. And so that was consistent with her story of stopping at the ATM. Right. Okay. They also found the same red carpet fibers on Lisa's clothes that were found at several of the victim's crime scenes. 
At this point, the task force also learned that Long had been on probation for the attempted abduction of Mary Hicks earlier in 1984, because remember, he got like a $1,500 fine and then three years probation, so he was on probation. Right. And they learned that he had been charged with rape back in 1974. So even though that charge never went anywhere. Yeah. Like he was acquitted or whatever. Yeah. They still found out about it. Okay. So although Long was quote unquote set free, ground and air surveillance teams were monitoring his every single move. Good. At 5.45 p.m. on November 15th, Long spoke on the phone with his ex-wife, Kathy, to arrange an upcoming visit with his children. And during that call, apparently Long discussed some of the murder victims that had been popping up in the area and asked if she had heard about them. And he told her, quote, it's a dangerous world and that she should be really careful. The next day, November 16th, between noon and 1.30 p.m., Long discarded trash in a nearby dumpster that trash was collected to comb through it for evidence and then the same thing happened after he vacuumed his car at a gas station and at this point the task force was preparing to arrest long they had four teams one to arrest transport and interrogate him another to seize and search his vehicle a third to search his apartment and the fourth to interview his neighbors okay That afternoon, Wong went to the movies and saw the Chuck Norris film Missing in Action. And at 4 p.m., as Long exited the theater, he was arrested. He was served with warrants to search his car, and he was taken into custody. And once he was arrested, Long admitted to a lot. He was first arrested and charged with the sexual battery and kidnapping of Lisa McVeigh, and he ended up confessing to that. Police then questioned Long about all of the murders that police had already linked him to and then started asking about some of the others. Okay. And eventually, Long basically admitted to eight murders. Fibers found in his car were able to link him to most of the victims. And he told investigators that the only way he had prepared for the murders was to purchase or the purchase of a rope that he kept in his car and cut into varying lengths. He also admitted to some other rapes, and he said that despite him being caught, he didn't regret releasing Lisa McVeigh, and he asked detectives to convey his apologies to her. Oh, how kind of you, sir. How how freaking (laughs) kind. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. He then asked if he could call his ex-wife, Kathy, during which he confessed to her what he had done. And he asked her to tell the kids that he had been killed in a car accident. He had kids? Yeah, with the with the with um, his first wife. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. I must have, I must have missed that part. Yeah, it was sometime Ugh. between 74 and 80 okay. when he was married to his first wife, Kathy. So they would have been at the oldest 10. Yeah, that's, I mean, obviously lots of sick fucks have kids but i don't know just brings a different element into it like yeah that could be your kids out there having that happen to them you know no it's disgusting especially if you have a daughter you know i don't know yeah i don't know i don't know if he had daughters or sons or what um yeah but no it's terrible on september 24th 1985 bobby joe long pled guilty to eight homicides and the rape of lisa mcveigh 
As part of the plea deal, seven of the murders would lead to life sentences, and then he would be facing sentencing for the murder of Michelle Sims. Okay. So he ended up receiving 26 life sentences without the possibility of parole, and an additional seven life sentences with the possibility of parole after 25 years. And as I said, with the plea deal, the state basically retained the option to seek the death penalty for the murder of Michelle Sims. Okay. And then on July 25th, 1986, Bobby Joe Long was sentenced to death for the murder of Michelle. Wow. Long tried to appeal varying degrees of these convictions, but in the end, according to the Florida Department of Corrections, Long was serving one five-year sentence, four 99-year sentences, 29 life sentences, and one death sentence. So you're not getting out. (laughs) No. At all. No. As he shouldn't. And then... On April 23rd, 2019, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed Long's death warrant. Wow. Long's subsequent appeals were denied, and on May 23rd, 2019, Bobby Joe Long was set to be executed. His last meal was roast beef, bacon, french fries, and soda, and he was executed by lethal injection that evening. And Lisa McVeigh? And his other surviving assault victim, Linda Nuttall, were present. I was going to say, I bet she was there. Yeah. And Lisa was wearing a t-shirt that apparently read, long dot 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 overdue. And she said that she wanted to be the first person that he saw. So they, okay. So like, I guess they show. I think, yeah, you like, can see. Behind the, gl- the glass. That's how they do it in the movies anyway. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dang. Good. Good for her. I, I don't know if I, I would know. have the 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 courage or the balls or the whatever to, to sit yeah, there. I to would do that. Yeah, I think I would be like, nah. Yeah. But good for her. Yeah. So overall, Long committed at least 10 murders and multiple rapes. And I want to share all of the victims just in one place. Okay. So his murder victims were 20-year-old artist Ann Wick, 19-year-old Nguyen Lana T. Long, 22-year-old Michelle Dennis Sims, 22-year-old Elizabeth Ludenbach, 21-year-old Vicki Marie Elliott, 18-year-old Chanel Devon Williams, 28-year-old Karen Beth Dinsfriend, 22-year-old Kimberly Kyle Hops, 18-year-old Virginia Lee Johnson, and 21-year-old Kim Marie Swan. And his two assault victims that survived were 33-year-old Linda Nuttall and 17-year-old Lisa McVeigh. Wow. I hope they they all rest in peace because it's such a horrific, tragic, horrible way to, to go out. Yeah. And I'm so thankful that he was caught, caught and justice was served. Yeah. So crazy. It took them that. I, I mean, I know, like, the death penalty, it takes, like, forever for it to like actually happen but god that seems like such a long time yeah i know and i feel like we don't usually see it actually happen so it was it's crazy to see yeah so back to lisa mcveigh she today is a police officer a school resource officer and a motivational speaker in tampa awesome as i mentioned she was placed in that runaway center after she escaped 
And once she aged out, she actually moved in with the very loving and caring aunt and uncle that she had. She said that they were the only family members that ever loved her, and thankfully she was finally in a safe home. Lisa took up a variety of jobs. In 1994, she began working at the Hillsborough County Parks and Rec Department. And apparently at one point, she reported a break-in at the office, and the responding deputy said to her, quote, you've got the attitude to be a cop. Ever thought of that? <laughs> so in 1999, she was transferred to the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office as a dispatcher. And then uh, at that point, she became a reserve deputy. And then in 2004, she signed up for the police academy. And Lisa now works in the same department that found and arrested her captor. And she's currently specializing in combating sex crimes and working to protect children. That's amazing. She also works in a middle school as a resource officer, and she uses her story to teach students how to handle potentially dangerous situations. She teaches children how to survive, telling them if anybody ever touches them to scream, and if they're ever taken to do whatever they can to survive. Yeah. And I wanted to include this quote because it just, like, made me start tearing up when I read it. Lisa said, If a student is ever down in the dumps, I tell them a story about a girl whose family abandoned her and who was kidnapped and raped. And I say, Do you think she lost her way? No. She became a police officer. You're looking at her. Aw. Isn't that amazing? That's just proof that, like, no matter what you go through how you choose to come off of it is completely up to you. Like you could definitely take, you know, the, the low road and like, you know, be depressed and like turn it, you know, turn to drugs or alcohol or whatever, all these different things. But you can also like take it, take the high road and, and like let light influence you and do like all these amazing things. And that's like, It takes a special person, I think, to be able to do that for sure. It really does. So Lisa wrote a book in 1997 with author Joy Wellman. It's entitled Smoldering Embers. And her story has also been featured in a 2013 episode of the true crime documentary series Surviving Evil and a 2018 Lifetime movie called Believe Me, The Abduction of Lisa McVeigh. Wow. And she is just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Not only did she survive for herself and is now doing incredible things herself, but she literally helped capture a serial killer. Yeah, he may not, I mean, he may not have ever been, I think he would have probably just because of like the fibers and stuff. DNA and, yeah. Yeah, but like she catapulted that into happening when it did, I think. Yeah, and who knows how many more people he would have killed before he was caught. Exactly. He was escalating. Yeah. He was going to keep going, so... And he was on a freaking roll, like, eight months. That's insane. Yeah. So she is absolutely incredible. And that is the story of Lisa McVeigh, along with the most horrific serial killer from Florida. Wow. That was... Yeah. That was a lot. A lot of emotions. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, at the end, just remember how incredible Lisa is. and Yeah. Yeah, so I will definitely post photos of Lisa and the other victims on our Instagram so you guys can go see their faces and see the incredible things that Lisa's doing now. And I'll also share them on our Facebook group. Our Instagram is inhuman underscore podcast and our Facebook group is inhuman podcast. And that is it for today's episode. I hope that you guys are as inspired by Lisa as I am. 
and we will have a new episode next week and until then keep it human bye